because today we're going to continue our series that uh, last week got interrupted for the Teen Challenge Week, but we're back and talking about greater than. Um, the book of Hebrews has a lot of comparisons to it, comparing Jesus against really kind of everything else that we might set up against him or set up as our our own ideas or things maybe that we've been taught or a, a heritage that we've grown up in. And this is particularly aimed at people who were first century Jewish uh, people, which is why it's called Hebrews. Um, it's aimed at people who understand that are steeped in traditions and uh, ways of life designed to be a connection with God. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is greater than what you've learned what you've experienced, what you've been taught. Jesus is the greatest. He's the greatest sacrifice. He's the pure and holy high priest. He is the mediator of a new covenant. And so today we're going to talk about the new, the greater covenant. Are you nostalgic about things sometimes? I, mean, I think we all have a little bit of nostalgia in us probably. If you're like us, you have maybe boxes of treasured memories. Things that you think, you know what? I'm, I'm going to hang on to that. Last night, Gina finished her marching band season of her senior year of high school, and we were wearing, and it was great. It has been a busy time for us as a family because we volunteered and done a lot with the marching band, um, and we traveled to the competitions, and so as a volunteer at the competitions, um, we wore these lanyards that had this like hard plastic thing for field access. And so at the end of it, it was like, oh, this is kind of a souvenir that we have now, right? We'll probably put that in a box and never look at it again. <laughs> Maybe we'll look at it, I don't know. I offered it to her when we got home last night. I thought, you know, maybe she wants this. It was her season. She said, no, I have the one from two years ago, which looked very similar. So sometimes we hang on to things, um, you know, photos of family members and experiences that we capture in, in photographs or, or things that we keep, you know, small things sometimes, sometimes bigger things. Because we get nostalgic about the past. There are things that we should remember, things that we've done, experiences that we've had, families that we've come from, and, you know, where we grew up and you know, maybe the experiences we had when we were in school or early in our lives or whatever it is, and we want to remember those events, those occurrences, those relationships, and they're important, and they're important to us. It, it, all those memories, all those experiences have formed us in who we are. That's who, you know, if you're really a collection of the experiences and relationships that you've had. But sometimes we like the new, right? Have you looked forward to something a lot? Have you been excited to start something new, a new job, a new school, a new relationship, a new event? Sometimes we want to transition into the, the new part of our lives. Or maybe it's like gadgets. You have like the, the latest gadget. You know people who are obsessed to have the latest gadget? Maybe. Some people are. Or maybe it's trends. Or maybe new clothes, new cars. We like new things. Today, the contrast that we're going to look at is between old and new. Between what people learned and were taught and, you know, kind of a structure that was in place 
And this new thing, at the time the Hebrew, that the book of Hebrews was written, the gospel was really still very new information. It was a, a new concept of how God would be at work within his people. Contrasted against thousands of years of the way that God had worked, right? And so there's this balance and this tension between the old and the new. First, we'll talk about the Old Testament. God had a covenant relationship with Israel, and it's described very significantly in Genesis chapter 17. In fact, the word covenant is used 13 times in 21 verses in Genesis chapter 17. If you read through that chapter, it's covenant, and this covenant, and my covenant, you'll keep my covenant, and here's the covenant, and like, wow, just that word. So it's an important concept for Israel's relationship with God, this whole idea of covenant. The way that the Old Testament describes a covenant being made, it's not, it's not established with, a, with words. It's by cutting. You cut a covenant. And that's because for most of the covenants that are established, and this is not just in the Bible, this is kind of this whole concept of covenant, there is something that gets cut a sacrifice that, that gets made. And in Genesis, it's uh, animals, animal sacrifice that happens when the covenant is created. So a covenant is made through a death, through the death of a sacrificial animal in this case. God's covenant is established with Abram, later Abraham, promised to extend to his family. So in Genesis 17, uh, Ishmael's already born, Isaac isn't born yet, and Abram's like, well, I want Ishmael because I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not a young man, God. <laughs> so establish my, this covenant, establish this with my son Ishmael, and God's like, no, it's for Isaac and for his descendants. That's who will be the recipient of this covenant. And it's all by God's choice, Right? Why did God choose Abram, later Abraham? I, we don't know. God's word doesn't say specifically why he picked Abram out of the mass of humanity at that point. But it's by God's choice. There are other covenants in the Bible. A covenant with Noah, um, that the earth would not be destroyed by flood again. And earlier with Abram, there's the covenant in Genesis 15 about the land being promised. Kind of a, an early um, hint at this covenant relationship with Abram. This covenant was conditional, though. Verses 1 and 2 from Genesis 17. You can read the whole chapter if you want, um, but we'll just look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. So there's this conditional nature of this first covenant. Walk before me and be blameless so that we can have this covenant. Abram was chosen, was set apart, but there was an expectation on Abram's life. And then there was the whole idea of circumcision and that ongoing obedience in the people of Israel. That that would be the mark of the covenant relationship and you know, they were to carry that out. Later, there were rites and sacrifices that foreshadowed what was to come. Because people were not obedient. 
Israel sinned again and again and again. And, and sometimes reading the Old Testament is like reading the same script that gets played out again and again and again where, where God's people would go, oh, you know what? We have God with us. We should follow him. And then they would follow God, and things would go well. And after a while, because things were going well, they would be like, well, look at us. We're good. And they would tend to drift away and forget and think, yeah, we got this. We're fine. <laughs> we don't need God, right? And then they would fall into the same pattern. They would drift away. They would fall into sin. They would live in that way for a while. This is through the whole process of the kings. Um, it just... One after another after another. And, and so God had this, uh, these rites and sacrifices that were established because of their sinfulness. Passover was the recalling of lambs that had been slain in the Exodus. Then there was the tabernacle and the temple and the holy places and burnt offerings and sacrifices that were made. And Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 says this. There were priests, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Are you familiar with Plato's cave? Plato was a, a Greek um, guy, philosopher, um, smart guy right, who, um, who had this idea of, of the cave where, the, and it was just this kind of allegory or image where, you know, everybody in the cave was positioned in such a way that they only could look forward, they couldn't look side to side, only look forward at a blank wall of the cave, and the light coming into the cave was from a fire that was behind them, and in front of the fire... So between the people and where the fire was, was a wall and, you know, like puppeteers would bring things up above the wall and the shadow of that would be then cast onto that wall. So the people then would see the shadow and would hear the voices of the people that were doing that. And so the entire experience of the people in the cave was only to see the shadow. That was their reality. Well, Plato's cave predates Hebrews. So, is it maybe a, the, the use of something that was familiar to people? This whole idea, there's a shadow on the wall. And this is what the temple really is. And the sacrifices really are. This is what you've seen. This is what you've experienced. This is what you've heard and been taught. But it's a shadow. Guess what? The reality is better than the shadow. Let's talk about the new covenant. Let's talk about that reality. Verse 15 of chapter 9 in Hebrew says this, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What that means is this. The first covenant existed. 
but we stayed in our sinfulness, and so there were all these things that had to happen. But this new covenant comes. So that those who are called may receive the promise, receive the promised eternal inheritance. There's a promise that's made. There's an inheritance in view. Hebrews further goes on to describe the covenant as like a will, like a last will and testament. In fact, that's in the language we call the Old Testament that. It's not because it testifies about God, but because it's like the will in a lot of respects. Right? So Hebrews talks about it in that way, that there's a death that occurs in order for the covenant or the will and testament to then be in full force and effect. See, God created a better covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, some of what we jumped over is actually quoting Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, which might be familiar words, because these come up, I think, annually in our readings. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. See, even in the Old Testament times, they were already looking ahead, and through the prophet Jeremiah, God was saying, there's going to be something better, a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It's a new covenant. It's a new contract. Regularly among athletes, among professional athletes, you'll hear about someone who's looking for a new contract, holding out maybe to get a new contract. The star athlete who's performed well, who then is you know, taking that performance and saying, I deserve more. And then there's the negotiation, and a lot of times a new contract is developed, figured out, or whatever. Most of the time, much of the time, it's for the benefit of the athlete. Sometimes it works with employees as well. Teachers get together and go through negotiation for a new contract. Firefighters and other public servants go through a process to get the new contract, and so on and so forth. A lot of times it's a collective bargaining kind of agreement. And the new contract is often better than the old one, right? You hope so anyway, for the employee's benefit. The beneficiaries of this new contract with God receive purely based, not on things that we've done. It's not like the athlete who can say, look, I hit this many home runs, and I drove in this many runs, and I stole these bases, and I didn't make any errors, and et cetera, et cetera. That's all based on what I've done. Look how good I am. 
as beneficiaries of this new contract, this new covenant with God. It's based on what he has done. Because just like Israel sinned again and again and again, we are subject to that same sinfulness. But this is what God does for us. He puts his law on our hearts and in our mouths, and we know him because he is with us. And he shows us mercy, and he remembers our sins no more. That's a gospel word in the Old Testament, if there's ever been one. That God would remember your sins no more. That God doesn't have a record, right? It's not like baseball cards where you can flip it over and see the statistics, right? Of every season that's ever been played and, you know, flip it over and see your 2019 statistics. Well, you know, 365 days you lived and, well... 365 days, you actually committed a sin, probably. So, (laughs) right? God doesn't have that kind of record on you or on me. He looks at us and sees instead of our sins and our problems and the things that we've done, instead he sees the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice for our sin, because Jesus offered a better sacrifice, which was himself. Those shadows uh, of the of the rites and sacrifices that were made, now we can see what's behind it. We can see the perfect and pure and whole sacrifice, the better one. Thus it was necessary. This is in uh, verse 23 of chapter 9. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's greater than. Blood was shed and sprinkled on the altar, the vessels, even the people. Blood was shed at the Passover and put on the doorposts and the lentil. Blood was shed at the cross. And that blood covers you and me. Purification is done through sacrifice. Verse 22 said this, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. A reference to Leviticus 17. Verse 14 asks rhetorically, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? We're purified. We're covered. We're washed. He's the ultimate sacrifice made in connection with the new, the better covenant. Because God makes promises, and those promises are kept. We've all made promises. Vows. Even sometimes it's, you know, kind of in passing, right? You ever had, um, maybe you've had this conversation? A child asks, are we going to the, are we going to go get ice cream? Um... I, we could, I guess. But you promised. <laughs> you ever heard that? You ever made that promise that you didn't realize you made? But you promised. But sometimes we make promises in a way that's, you know, official. 
I wear a ring that's a sign of a vow that I made, that I intend to keep. We make promises and we endeavor and plan and expect and hope that we can keep those promises. Sometimes we do well. Sometimes someone might have to say what you promised. But God keeps his promises. Verse 6 of chapter 8 from Hebrews. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Here's the thing about God. He keeps his promises 100% of the time, without fail, without being reminded. And we are purified by the work of Jesus. The new covenant means we are made right with God. How much more would that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Through the work of Jesus, through his sacrifice, through that gift, you and I are made holy and pure and perfect in his sight. Not through our work, through our conduct, our sacrifice that we make, but through the work of Jesus, through his perfect life, through his sacrifice. This is greater than anything else. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 uh, point out that this is the greater relationship with God. There is none better than this. That's purely lived in His grace, by His mercy, by His work of redemption. This is the greatest because we are saved. And we're saved to serve. Did you catch that at the end of verse 14? We're purified in our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So now we have a purpose in our lives. God has sanctified you and me for his reasons. Just like he picked Abram for whatever reason God had. He has chosen you. He's chosen me. He's not pulled us up from where we live and sent us off to this strip of land along the Mediterranean. Go there. I'll meet you there. He's called us to serve him in the places where we live, in the places where we are. He's put his word in our hearts, his law in our hearts. He's given us this relationship with him that is found nowhere else than through the work and the grace of Jesus. So we're called to live for him through this covenant. The work is done. The effort was made. So we can live in freedom, keeping our vows and our promises to God and work in the kingdom of God to help people see what's greater than. The greatest is Jesus. Amen.